Hello, and welcome back once again to the Inquisitor podcast with me, Marcus Kauke. Today, my guest is Steve Barnhurst. He's the Enterprise Sales Director at Ebster. They're a fabulous uh, organization. We'll talk about a little bit about what they do in a minute. But Steve is a very experienced sales leader. He's worked in startups all the way through to major corporates, including PE-backed uh, organizations. He's built teams, uh, delivered uh, really good results o- over his career. And we're going to be looking at a number of blind spots that people have. We're going to be looking at stuff that you really do need to think about as a leader and maybe stop creating the conditions where you can't trust the numbers coming your way, where you can't trust what you're being told by your salespeople. And we're also going to look at some frequently unasked questions around how you can create good engagement and when you should maybe go looking for bad news. So, Steve, welcome. Thank you, Marcus. Nice to meet you. And thank you for the opportunity today. It's a pleasure. So, Steve, would you mind giving us about 60 seconds in terms of your history, please? My history. So um, once I decided I was never going to be quite good enough to become a golf professional, I decided I had to get a proper job. And I I found my way into the wonderful world of recruitment at an early age. And um, I look back now and I actually think it served me incredibly well. Um, you know, for anybody who's worked in that industry, it's um, very demanding in terms of, you know, the effort you have to put in, the hours that you have to work, not to say that other opportunities and roles aren't. But it really, if you work for the right company, um, conditions you, I would suggest, as a very, very strong salesperson. Um, so I spent uh, quite a while in there specializing in placing software salespeople. When I left recruitment, moved into a software house, very exciting company and real desires to grow the business and spent six years there, um, doubled the size of the sales function, brought on new sales um, elements to that business. uh, And we took that through to a very, very successful um, transaction for that that company. So that was incredibly enjoyable. Um, Left them, went to another startup business um, who got acquired relatively soon after I joined them. Um, and that's where I ended up working for a PE-backed organization. And that really changed the way I looked at running sales teams. Um, we were absolutely data-driven. Um, it was numbers, 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 very, very regimented processes. And with that comes both the good and the bad. So that, that was a huge learning curve, but you know, a highly enjoyable um, period for me. And then I found my way back to another startup and we're going on a relatively fast-paced journey over the next two to three years uh, and just trying to bring together all of that sort of knowledge of experience of creating really successful sales teams, really collaborative sales teams, but sales teams that are just focused on delivering um, really solid outcomes to get the business to where it needs to be. Interesting. Okay, so let, let's um, start with, uh, the blind spots that come from your salespeople. Yeah. Talk me through the blind spots that you've learned to look for. They're salespeople, right? And I was a salesperson myself, so I, I don't mind saying this, but you know, when you get into driving a business forward, uh, for me, I think that predictability and consistency are absolutely crucial. You know, the last thing that any founder wants, or certainly any uh, board and certainly a PE house wants, is inconsistency in the figures and the numbers. They need to know that the salespeople are on top of the pipeline, the leaders are on top of the salespeople, and so on and so forth. And I think when you go into your stereotypical reviews with salespeople, one-to-ones, whatever you refer to them as, the salesperson's always going to be selling to you that everything's great, everything's rosy, the deal's definitely going to come in. Now, typically, if you have a team of any size, 
you don't necessarily have the time to drill into every single opportunity to question and challenge that. You'd like to, and you try to, it's incredibly time consuming. Yeah, if you were to have a sales team of, say, 20 people, Marcus, and you try to do a review with every single one, that's going to be 20 hours. Yeah, if you do that every other week, that's a huge amount of time as a leader that you're, you could be doing something else. So indirectly, you start to cut corners, you get through it quickly, and you start to take them on face value, because why shouldn't you? But ultimately, that's where the detail starts to leak away from you. Have you managed the decision-making process? Are you aware of all the key people you need to be involved in? And ultimately, that's why for most companies, you get to the end of the month or quarter, and they're not where they need to be. So the blind spot comes from the trust and the lack of visibility. Okay, and uh, another piece to extrapolate from that, which is really critical, is the vital importance of a totally thorough, unambiguous decision step where you cover all of Kipling's six serving men, who, Mm -hmm. what, when, how, why, which, and something else, whatever the other one is. Well, that was six. Anyway, then when it comes to who, who else, who else, who else, who else? Because you need to understand, particularly in enterprise, that there is an evaluation committee Mm -hmm. and then there is a decision-making committee. And those people may well be quite different. Yeah, absolutely. And when people are making complex, important strategic enterprise Mm -hmm. decisions, um, they are constrained by the process. However, the individuals are driven by their emotion. Mm -hmm. And so it's a balancing act of being able to ensure that you have tied up the entire decision step cleanly, because if you haven't, you can drive a coach and horses through that at the 11th hour. And all of that work is then wasted. Yeah, I mean, the DMP, as I would call it, the decision-making process is critical, right? It needs to be really robust. It needs to be completely consistent. It needs to be applied to every opportunity that you work within reason, irrespective of size. You build that continuity into your sales team, you know, repeatable um, traits at desk level. Um, That's how you really tend to drive success. If you've got people going off doing their own thing, it is really hard to govern that. But to your point, you know, closing those enterprise deals is a culmination of science and data, um, skill, and art, right? You know, you've got to bring all of these factors together to manage that incredibly well. And not many people can do that. You, you guys have done some amazing research the last couple of years, which I, I've found very, very insightful. Would you mind sharing a little bit about that with respect to coverage and engagement and the critical issues that sales leaders and managers really need to be pointing their salespeople towards instead of the, frankly, masturbatory metrics that they're mostly measuring that don't help them move deals forward and uncover latent potential. Yeah, I mean, without being sort of dismissive, I would say just tracking stages in a CRM is pretty old school, right? I think we're better than that. And we've certainly moved well beyond that. We analyzed your point last 12 months, 1.6 million sales tracks act sales transactions that ran across our platform. And from that, we were able to see some fascinating trends in terms of what was happening in the sales process. So, for example, when a deal is won, the average sales cycle is around about 97 days. That's what we saw. However, when... And these were enterprise deals? um, These were deals across 1.6 million transactions, so mid-market through enterprise. Right. Now, we can slice and dice for for the different sectors, but just at at an average level, that's where they sat. 
What was interesting for that same data set, the length for deals closed lost was 169 days. Mm -hmm. So sales reps are clinging on to opportunities significantly longer. And as I was taught by my old boss, hope is not a strategy. No. Right? These deals are not coming in. Yeah, now, it's what's going to happen on which your career will crash? Yeah, exactly. But the thing is, the sales rep's going to come to that review and say, don't worry, Marcus, this month's a bit tough, but I've got it for next month. It's coming in. Right? The data would suggest otherwise. Okay, so that's where you get that inconsistency. That's where those blind spots come in. We're clinging on to deals that are going to take far too long, but for the business, then start to suck up time and resource and money when we will be infinitely better off pointing our best salespeople in alternative directions. We also saw from the engagement, which we do a huge amount around, when you have two to three people involved in a deal, your win rate is relatively low for those larger deals, maybe around about 25%. If you can get good engagement, and there's a question around what good is, but if you can get good engagement with between six and eight people, your win rate goes just above 50%. Okay, so that's doubling. Yeah, absolutely. And, and these no are no additional cost. No, absolutely. Absolutely. Okay, maybe so less cost have... because you could be more efficient, right? If so you're not I'm wasting... really curious... Do you have data on the amount of effort that goes in to get one deal over the line? Depends how you would define effort, but we can talk, certainly talk about, you know, the, of the channel activity, outreach, emails, uh, follow-ups, then the all the telephone conversations, the unsuccessful attempts, the collateral, the content that you send, all of that, because you've just cut your cost of sale in half. Mm -hmm. Yeah. I mean, we would certainly see some of that. I'm not going to sit here and be, you know, arrogant and say we see all of it. You know, I'm sure there's bits that, that happen outside of a system or outside of a sales process that don't always get captured. But certainly for the, the main elements, the critical elements, we would capture all of that and certainly see that effort. But I think for me, it's fascinating if you're running a sales process is do you need more opportunities? No, you just need to work the right opportunities better. Uh, and that's how you drive efficiency in the sales process. I'd put money on it that one of the most common objections that you get is something along the lines of we don't have time to implement it or our people wouldn't like it, that, that kind of stuff. And what they're effectively doing is arguing for the status quo. And well, nobody likes change, right? Sorry, nobody likes change. Nobody likes change, but change can be better, right? Well, and, and this is the point. Actually, people fear uncertainty. They don't, they don't fear change. They fear the uncertainty. Um, that, that's why there was a meta study of 330 studies of mankind's greatest fear. And ultimately, the number one was the future because with it comes uncertainty. And actually, if you look at the environment we're operating in at the moment, in mm -hmm. Q1 of 2022, we have the Cold War's ghost come back, resurrected and gone hot. We have hyperinflation in certain sectors like construction, it's 24.5%. And yeah. in hospitality, it's 12.5%. And mm -hmm. we're seeing massive turnover of staff and upheaval and change. So that creates more uncertainty. And you start looking at all of these things that are going on. Is it any wonder that customers have the jitters at the moment? That must be reflected in the experience that your salespeople are having and managers are having out there. So providing certainty in you know, that kind of environment, that must be an oasis for people. 
Yeah, I mean, obviously I'm biased, but I, I would think if you're running a business, you want certainty, right? You want predictability. Yes. That's absolutely critical. I think for us, what we do, not intentionally, is we we bring a completely data-driven approach to parts of a sales organization that's typically been done in this format, you and I speaking one-to-one, very, very subjective there. So that can expose people, right? And, and maybe that, to your point, brings an air of um, uncomfort to those situations. But out of that will become a far better working environment and far better success on both sides. Okay. So if you dig into the data, yeah. what, what other kind of insights can uh, one pluck out from the communication that goes on that isn't necessarily recorded in the central system of record like the CRM. I mean, I think that's one of those fascinating things, isn't it? Companies will spend millions of pounds genuinely on putting in Salesforce or, or something similar. And then all that happens is that, you know, people operate outside of that system. You know, it's not been set up particularly well. It's not been configured to their business. They've maybe not been trained on it, et cetera, et cetera. And so people start to live their lives in Outlook and Excel spreadsheets or whatever it may well be. So I think fixing that is pretty boring, but it's absolutely vital. And I think you've ultimately got to do that. And then once you've got data certainty, you can start to measure some incredibly fascinating things you know, around, you know, the velocity of communication, the reciprocity of communication. And from there, you can start to look at what relationships you hold, the strength of relationships, uh, and which ones are going to deliver the best outcomes. So how much hidden revenue can one typically expect if you connect all the subsurface communication that's going on with the central system of record? Couldn't put a number on it, right? I'm not going to sit here and suggest that I can. But what I would say to you is that if you get your house in order to that degree, then we could or you could identify which deals you're going to lose well before you've lost them. And you could identify which deals you could win if you were to give them a little bit more love and attention. So that certainty and that ability to course correct that ability to invest time and resource in the right areas, I think he's absolutely paramount. Otherwise, you take a one-size-fits-all to every sales opportunity you work, which is why there's this obsession with get more, more, more. I don't need more. I just need to understand the ones I've got better so I can really work them in the right way. Now, again, if, if you think about this logically, the mathematics of this approach it is substantially more effective and efficient. I think a big trap that people fall into is that more is better. More is just more. The ethos that I try and instill is do less but better on purpose. How can we generate double the uh, the income for half the effort? Yeah. What can we do to eliminate friction? And by the sounds of things, what you're effectively doing is pinpointing the areas that we are getting between the prospect and their decision to buy through inattention or lack of coverage or a failure to create that two-way flow of communication, those kind of clues, which are all within the salesperson's gift to control. Yeah, I think you know, I want to help companies to be ruthlessly efficient, right? You know, I should use the word ruthlessly in a positive way. You will never sign every client that you choose to work with, unfortunately, but there's nothing wrong with that. There's nothing wrong with that. There's nothing wrong from walking away from the deal, but we should do it under our timeframes, not the client's timeframes. 
I was taught it's our responsibility to get to the no as early as possible. It's our responsibility to get to the no before the client. If the client tells me I'm not interested, Steve, I've wasted time, right? I need to manage that process better. I need to ask the tough questions. The best salespeople, the best sales leaders will be asking the most difficult questions. They are not necessarily long or complicated. They're just the questions you don't want the answer to. And more often than not, the one question salespeople cannot answer is why, because they turn up with uh, big happy ears and rose-tinted spectacles. And I I think we need to instill a slightly more curmudgeonly approach to uh, discovery, because salespeople have a tendency, in my experience, to listen and see what they want to, as opposed to what is actually being said or presented to them. And Uh, the net result of that is an awful lot of opportunities that they um, put into forecast Mm -hmm. that have no business being there. So what I'm really interested in is by implementing this level of visibility, do you see a shift in management behavior away from command and control and doing to releasing them to do more operational on-the-job coaching? Yeah, I mean, I genuinely do, right? I think you're quite right. You know, people will put opportunities in pipeline because they're trying to protect their jobs, right? They're trying to create this environment or this impression that they are busy, right? But nobody wants a busy fool in their business, right? That's not going to get you to where you want to get to. That sucks in the leadership team to invest more time in those meetings, those calls, those reviews, whatever it may well be. If we can surface data that would suggest what's really going on, with an opportunity, we can have a far more collaborative conversation, we can have a shorter conversation, but I can also actually then empower the sales rep to come forward and ask for help and say, Marcus, I'm working an opportunity, but I think I need some executive level sponsorship. I need you to get involved because I need to get a relationship going at a different level in a different department to advance this opportunity. So the actual rhetoric inside the sales function becomes far more Um, relevant, far more dynamic. And like I say, the output is far greater. So again, I I suspect there may be a cultural issue here because historically, salespeople are very often reluctant to bring in those senior people. So by freeing managers up to be able to do higher value work, are they better positioned to be able to uh, create more trust with their salespeople? Because experience tells me that a lot of the salespeople don't really trust their management. They feel like the manager is trying to push the uh, the board's agenda. And often that is at the expense of the salesperson's interests. It's difficult, isn't it? I think the minute that the sales leader gets involved and they get a win with the salesperson, they'll be brought in more and more often, right? The reality is, is we're probably working it back to front, but the sales leaders happen to get involved when the figures aren't where they need to be. And then they start to unearth all of the issues that to a certain degree have been hidden by a relatively well-organized salesperson, right? So what you can then start to do is actually, you know, build better trust by a better working environment with transparency, you know, and I think that's what we're trying to gear towards is, you know, remove the subjectivity, remove the blah, blah, as one of our clients said to us, just cut through the noise. What does the data tell us, Marcus? Well, if we do X, Y, and Z, we've got a better chance here. Well, look, if you can help me with that, why would I not want you to work with me? So as a sales leader who has worked your way up the ranks and lived with being blind to this information, and now you have it. 
What, what is the difference in terms of how you can operate and the choices that you can make that you previously couldn't? I think that's the optimal word, right? It's choice. You know, I, I can see very clearly where we're going to end up well ahead of schedule, right? You know, I can see, you know, literally how we're pacing, you know, what the month's going to look like, what the quarter's going to look like, and basically where we need to affect change and course correct far earlier than ever before. Yeah, that removes a wealth of stress for me and for the sales team in its own rights. And I think that's one of the biggest things. And if you think about it in the world in which we live in now, we've got a very disparate workforce. Everybody's working remotely or hybrid. We no longer have that. Let's all get in the boardroom and, and do it as easily as it once was. Obviously, we can jump on Zoom teams and other services are available type of thing. Um, but for me to be able to see there and to have a consistent view of our world, you know, it, it's, it's sort of almost sort of game-changing for me in that sense. So again, I'm, what I'm really interested in is the impact on the real the metrics that will drive the business to be more profitable, more successful, achieve its goals faster. If you are able to filter out the non-prospect sooner, what are you seeing in terms of a shift uh, in the shape of the funnel? Better, better win rate, short sales cycle. Okay, so in the middle of the funnel. How much more visibility do you have of what's going on than you did previously? Well, I've got, I, I can show positive and negative factors um, to the tune of seven apiece either side on every single opportunity that will work right now. Right. Okay. Because to, from my experience, what tends to happen because of the way CRM is set up mm-hmm. is the leadership and management are pounding the table saying, get more leads in the top of the yeah. funnel. And as soon as you put an opportunity or a record into the CRM, the first thing you're asked is about a close date. So your emphasis goes from the top to the bottom of the funnel. And um, so the middle of the funnel tends to get neglected. And what we see in most organizations is this constipation. So it it looks like a pair of old granny knickers Mm -hmm. um, instead of a thong. And as a result, you see a lot of resource being sucked into that dead or that stagnant middle of the funnel where people spin their wheels yeah. so if you look at the transition period how long does it take to suddenly cre- uh, to create pipeline hygiene especially in the middle so you can actually trust it i think you know for us we do a lot of work on analyzing the past to be able to predict the future so you know we look at the last year of deals done or the last thousand deals to create benchmarks of what does work and what doesn't work, all of the levels of engagement that are required to deliver the right outcomes. And so we've been able to map out a process that says at this point in sales process, you should be engaging with this person or at this point in the process, you should have undertaken the legal review or you should have got through, you know, infosec, et cetera, et cetera. So we can start to map those micro stages and, and build a real cadence of work are you able to pinpoint the gaps in the relationship? So, for example, identifying invisible key people who should, on the basis of historical uh, deals, be involved, but for some reason the salesperson hasn't brought them in? To a certain degree, yeah, absolutely. I mean, it's difficult because not every company will have that person with that job title and job titles are not particularly obvious these days. But absolutely... We can certainly see, based on the success that you as a business have had in the past, 
how many people you typically need to engage with and at what level. Um, and also what we tend to do is it's not about just getting involved with that person. It's how you build momentum. Momentum is critical in any, any sales function. And if that relationship with that key economic buyer is declining, then you need to know about it very early on. And maybe that's where you go to your leadership function and they come in and they get that back on track. Where that's most notable, Marcus, is that as a salesperson, we work incredibly hard to win a deal. And then we move on to the next one. Okay, it's absolutely vital at that point that the strength of the relationship that I've taken three, six, nine, 12 months to build is maintained and developed even further. Because if the relationship that I struck goes into decline, then it's going to impact upsell, cross-sell, and almost certainly your contract renewal. It makes that so much harder. At that point, that's when you have to become an infectious disease, isn't it? Yeah, I mean, you've got to go deep and wide in the organization and use those... Um, uh, or leverage those relationships. Again, you've got to keep in mind that it's to serve the customer better. I heard a fantastic description from Charlie Green yesterday when he was coaching me. And he said, you've got to be long-term selfish. Yeah. Short-term, medium-term, you obsess about the customer. Mm-hmm. Knowing that in time, you'll get your needs met too. But yeah. you've got to make them the hero. But the, the key thing here that I'm seeing is that unless management has visibility of what's really going on in those deals, then to a large extent, it's guesswork. And and there is a temptation to get sucked into, let me show you how a real salesperson closes. I was a frontline salesperson for too many years that I'd care to mention, right? But I'm pretty sure if we did a one-to-one pipe review, I could get you leaving that room feeling, leaving the room feeling pretty confident that next quarter was going to be good, right? That doesn't help the business. It it buys me another three months in the job, right? Makes you feel good when you feed that back up the chain. But when we come to quarter end, we're not where we need to be. That's where the problems ensue. So the evidence is out there, but the results are not. Yeah, exactly. Right? So like you said, transparency, visibility, data-driven, you know, so you you can make decisions based on data, not on gut feel, right, are critical. So... If you look back to your PE days, yeah, what's different now and how could you be- challenge what the investors are asking you, of you on the basis of this data and the insights that you're getting? You know, at the time, it was incredibly challenging because you always feel that you're under the microscope. That's how I felt. You're, you're being questioned. You're being judged. There was no room for ambiguity. It was black or white. You either delivered it or you didn't deliver it. I, I look back now and I think, actually, there was nothing wrong with that. You know, they'd invested in the business. They wanted to grow that business. That, that's their job and their responsibility. You know, they needed confidence that the people who were running the business they bought knew what they were doing. And, you know, we would get our knuckles wrapped just as much for coming in over budget as we would do for being under nobody wants surprises so i think looking back there was nothing wrong with the environment and the the regular cadences that uh, cadences that they made us run and we've implemented those now so we have a quarterly cadence you know we've got monthly cadence we've got weekly cadence we've got specific meetings on specific days with key objectives and key outputs uh, and we just we just keep repeating that. We build up a very consistent view. But I look back to that PE world, and I think all they wanted to know was what was happening. And if you could tell them, 
it was fine. It was an easy ride. If you weren't able to tell them, it became uncomfortable very quickly. Right. So as long as you were delivering the truth and there were no surprises, and you then had a plan on how you were going to address any shortfalls, then it would give you uh, effectively a passport to uh, credibility with them. A hundred percent, a hundred percent, right? You know, it's if you were able to say, look, we're, we're going to miss this month because of X, but looking ahead, the plan to address it is Y, no problem at all. Yeah, as my boss said, if we miss the month, if we miss the quarter, I have no problem with that as long as we have a plan. And I think it's seeing it early enough to implement that plan that's critical. You know, if we look at it now, I was having a conversation with a client a couple of weeks ago, their new financial year, 1st of April, like many companies out there, you know, absolutely vital they get off to what we would refer to as a fast start, right? They have to deliver 125% minimum Q1, that sets them up for the year. If they don't deliver Q1, and then they struggle to deliver Q2, the year is dead in the water. So absolutely imperative that they're working well ahead of themselves. And you find a lot of companies that, you know, live in the month. You know, people looking at the next quarter, maybe beyond. But, you know, the PE world is forward 12, right? They're looking so far down the line. But, yeah, I think you're right. As long as you can be, you know, honest, transparent and accurate, whether it's good or bad, then people can work with that far better than getting surprises. Interesting. Okay. So I'm very curious to see once someone implements this, do they see a reason to shift more towards account growth and development rather than this massive obsession with new logos. I'm curious if you see any shift in behavior when they start getting the coverage and they're, they're you know, going deeper and wider. I think it depends. And I think that that sort of moves over time. And also, I think it depends on the actual um, product that you're involved with. Um, there's always going to be a desire for new logos, right? I think you keep you have to keep the business moving forwards for sure. But I think what you will see is you'll be able to drive your upsell and cross-sell better. But for me, you know, I've always focused far more so on the, the new business acquisition side personally. And I just think it just allows you to be more efficient, right? So you can move towards more of a, you know, a hyper-personalized focus in terms of your outbound. You can really be selective about the companies you want to go after. You can have a true sort of account-based selling approach rather than just the whole shotgun of just get everything through the front door and treat it all the same. So, yeah, again, it just it makes you a leaner, more efficient operating machine. I think you and I are both obviously huge advocates of selling warm through referral. But I've been really thinking about this. It just strikes me that there, there is an insanity to selling cold when mm-hmm. instead you can sell hot and get to the same people. So uh, again, I'm really curious to see how one uses this in a partner environment, for example, mm-hmm. because to my mind, I, I want to find ways of creating the ability to scale sustainably. And mm-hmm. the most logical way for me is working with partners, yep. but then extending that into ecosystems. So I'm really curious about how one can track and map levels of engagement within your strategic alliances and your your channel. That's ultimately what we do, right? Our whole focus is around, we believe, we know that relationships drive revenue, right? That that's what we're that's what we're driving forward. So, you know, you need to track that. 
Um, that in, means you've got to have data certainty in your system of record. Um, you need to assess the momentum of those relationships. Are they improving or are they declining? Um, you need to understand how many you as an individual business need to have in order to drive a positive outcome. Um, and I think that's that's absolutely critical. Now, you know, we only serve a certain parts of the market. So, you know, we do partner with other organizations around sort of complementary technology. Um, but like any organization, people will have quite considerable tech stacks these days. You know, the, the question therein is, are they getting everything they can do from the tech they've got, or are they just layering on top more and more and more for fear of missing out? Well, uh, again, I have seen many organizations that seem to have invested heavily in a technology spaghetti, yep. where there is a, a lot of replication of capability. They don't really know how to use it. It's yeah. used, some of it's used, some of it's not. And it just strikes me that I think a, a really good exercise is if you were to start your business completely from afresh mm -hmm. and you were building your technology stack from a blank sheet of paper, how would you advise people to do that? And, and what, what kind, they're, they're not necessarily naming technologies, but what, what is it that as a sales leader, you really want the technology to enable your salespeople to be able to do? I think that's the thing, right? It's, you've almost got to work it backwards. You know, we always go to market and say, I need a new piece of X. Um, I think you need to basically say, right, what do we need in order to be successful? Going back at, and why do we need it? To your point, you know, start starting with the why. Uh, I think a massive missed opportunity for, for most organizations when they buy tech is that they never, some kind, they very rarely get the end users involved in the buying process. <laughs> Frustrates me immensely. And so the leadership function will go out to market, they'll do the beauty parade, and then they'll make this grand announcement. Oh, hey, team, we've bought you X. And then the team who's actually got to do the day job goes, well, this is great, but it doesn't do Y and Z. So that was brilliant. Yeah. Right? Um, and I also think that if you were to put any sort of time frame around that buying process, 75, 80% of putting a new bit of kit is the beauty parade and the selection and the purchasing. And then the last little bit is the onboarding and the training, and it should be the other way around. Could not agree more. Yeah. Okay. Okay. And, it, and I've seen it so many times and probably been guilty of it ourselves in the past, but never will be again, that, you know, I would always include, you know, some of my key best performers from different teams in the buying process just to make sure it's actually going to deliver and be adopted, right? You know, product adoption is hard. Um, and it's things if you force a system on people, they'll work around it. If you give them a tool that makes their lives easier, you'll never have to think about it again. So uh, again, why is it that so few salespeople are trained to think as the customer? They're, they're not thinking as the poor sock um, who has to pick up the pieces and live with the piece of tech that they've just thrown. Uh, just time, right? It's time. It's time and commission, right? Commission drives a certain set of behaviors and the company who employs the salespeople typically want results on a monthly basis, I would argue. Okay. Huh. Big, big, big question around commission, which I'm yeah. wrestling with at the moment. Well, okay. you mentioned earlier that, you know, you, you, you just started in recruitment, right? And there's probably no better world than to reference it there. You know, that is all about starting people, you know, on the first of the month or, or whenever it may well be. And the, the placements you make are the placements you ultimately get paid out on. That creates the sorts of reputation that recruitment has. And as I said, I did it for 10 years, so I, I don't feel bad about saying that. 
if you were to move to an environment where it was, we don't worry about the target, you know, on a monthly basis, about the year, the probably the experience, which is a horrible world word in its own right, but the whole experience of that sales process would be significantly different and would be very different overnight. So this then leads to another crucially important question, mm. which is how do you remove the friction in the silos and the fiefdoms and the empire builds and the egos in your own organization? Because experience has taught me that the hardest sell for enterprise salespeople is the internal one. It's trying to galvanize the discretionary effort of a bunch of people who don't have a vested interest and who aren't compensated so you, you, and who have day jobs. What needs to be done? If you, Again, if you're starting with a blank sheet of paper, what are the questions you need to start with in order to create that cohesion, that alignment, that cooperation uh, across the entire revenue operations for the customer's experience to be better? I think it's, it's um, open communication, transparency from the outset. You know, I believe, you know, what is my job as a leader? My job is to create an environment for other people to be successful. And it's to create an environment for other people to be more successful than me, right? If I do that, then I've delivered success for the business. And that's not necessarily just in the sales function. That's my primary focus. But, you know, if I can help marketing, if I can help, you know, the RevOps function, if I can help the SDR function, whatever it is, then everybody ultimately benefits from that. And I think it's certainly in a startup, it's probably easier to achieve, but I just think letting everybody know what the objective of the company is, the direction in which we're going, and ensure that you've hired the right people who want to go on that journey with you, I think is crucial. And once you can elevate you know, the above the individual and go company first, then I think you're in a very, very positive and empowered position. So very contentious question then. From is, you, I can't believe that. I know. It is what passes for great in sales fit for purpose. What do you mean by that? Well, when one thinks of the stereotypical great salesperson, yeah, and that's to a large extent the sort of the model yeah. uh, against which many organisations recruit. Mm-hmm. Do you think they're fit for purpose in no. an age? Right? No, <laughs> it would be what we would historically refer to as toxic talent. Right. You know, the, the argument would be you take your 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 best sales performer. Would you put a brand new starter with that person for them to train and onboard? Never, because they're probably operating outside of all of the system processes that you've tried to implement. <laughs> so, you know, it's, I think we've moved beyond, or we certainly should have moved beyond, and I've moved beyond just looking at performance. And you start to look at performance as well as how these people engage with the business. And you'd rather have somebody that performs pretty well, that engages in all of the right ways as opposed to this lone wolf who's doing great deals, but is leaving a trail of sort of, you know, noise and frustration and disaster in their wake. I'm really interested because I, I think that the world of sales is changing mm-hmm. uh, irrevocably. Um, yeah. Yeah, the idea we're going back to the way things were is just a, a, a pipe dream of yep. um, dinosaurs. I think sales as a profession has has to shift because buyers' behavior has changed. They are incredibly well-informed, but often only at a surface level. And often they're making decisions because they're trying to avoid the salespeople. And as a result, those uh, customers are very prone to churning. So 
it doesn't do them any good. It doesn't do you as a vendor any good. No. Because you just create problems downstream and more cost and yeah. reputation damage and all the other stuff. So um, I'm really interested in what are the really basic fundamental questions that sales leaders need to ask themselves frequently yeah. and that are looking for the bad news, the ugly mirror moments. Yeah. I mean, my, my favorite question, and none of this is new, you know, there's very few new ideas out there, right? Um, but for me, when I'm speaking to the sales teams, you know, the ones here and the ones I've worked with in the past, I would always be asking them and challenging them to ask the client, what is the impact of doing nothing? And to your point, you know, there is very much a sales process. Don't forget, you know, there's some very, very sophisticated buyers out there and there's also a buying process. And I think we need to tap into that and, and some salespeople forget that. And, you know, they, they forget that there is a process the company will be running, um, that they're sort of almost governed to, to, to go through certain stages um, in the same way that we're trained to get cost up, their buyers are trained to get cost down. You know, these are all really, really critical factors. And if you can ask, you know, somebody, the right person, you know, what is the impact of doing nothing, that will give you a wealth of insight that you wouldn't necessarily have otherwise. If you can address that impact, then... Again, it's cliched, but you can move away from being your traditional salesperson and become a partner and a supplier, and you can actually get some sort of alignment. And I think that's critical. I think there's a really interesting opportunity at the moment. There are technologies like Ebster out there, White Rabbit and various others, that um, when you start looking at the potential, when you start clustering them together, and you, you start thinking, that, what, what's the outcome that we really want? Well, what we really want is to grow our sales as profitably and effectively as possible. Yeah. And, and for our salespeople to be hyper successful and stay. That's really what we want as sales leaders, isn't it? Yeah, absolutely. And, and we've taken, you know, without giving too many sort of secrets away here, we, we started to take a very different approach to the way in which we do our sales, right? So when we do our discovery, and I'm a massive fan of discovery, you know, if I had the first phone caller for an hour, I'd be doing all of it on discovery. You mentioned it at the beginning about getting into the process. Um, you know, most salespeople want to get to the demo as quickly as possible because that's where they feel most comfortable. <clears throat> we should flip that, right? The demo should become the very last thing that we do. And in certain situations, if you do enough discovery and, you know, your questioning is good enough, you may not even need to demo. Now, I'm sure you would do, right? But I think discovery is, is absolutely critical to the whole sales process. People mistake the demo and the proposal for part of the sales yeah. process. It's yeah. not. They are confirmations of the order. They're a statement of work. And, and when you're doing the demo, why on earth are you demoing all the features? Why, why are you not just demoing to the problem that they know? Well, that's exactly what I was going to say, right? So we do, I do a huge amount of discovery. I drive the teams to do a huge amount of discovery. We always ask, what is the impact of doing nothing, right? Once we understand the impact... We demo from that point backwards, right? So I have no desire to do a demo from left to right, A to Z. I want to understand, well, actually, I've got a huge problem with my forecasting, Steve. We're typically 7 10% miss every month, every quarter, right? Or whatever it may all be, right? <laughs> I love your optimism. Go on. Well, yeah, exactly. Right. 15, 20% out. Okay. When I was in recruitment, our forecast varied 65% either way. Fair enough. Let's, 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 let's be gracious to say... For coin let, let's be gracious to say a business is 15% out, right? The impact of doing nothing is we're still going to be 15% out over a 12-month period. That's a massive miss for the year. 
Okay, well, look, okay, let me show you how we can reduce that. I can't get rid of it. I'm not going to be that arrogant. But if I can cut that in half, you know, what impact would that have to the bottom line and how much time would that give you back to your sales leaders? So I'm going to go that piece of the platform. Then they, if they ask me, well, how do you do that? I'll go into the, the bog standard bits, right? This is really interesting because increasingly uh, I'm realizing that when as a seller you release budget, you mm-hmm. free up resource, mm-hmm. all of a sudden you're now procurement and the FD's best friend. Yeah. And your HR's best friend. Instead of seeing them as the enemy, try and work out how do we make their jobs easier? Well, exactly. I mean, surely if you could go to any chief exec in the world and say, hey, Marcus, I can make you money or I can save you money, you'd like to think they'd have a sensible conversation with you. It's now my responsibility to follow back that up. And like I say, I can do that if I've done good discovery. So discovery is an art form, and I think we skip it far too quickly. And also, I think far too often people are just looking for the decision maker and they forget that the evaluation committee is made up of influencers, recommenders, specifiers, technical buyers, user buyers. There are enemies and uh, who are vying for the same budget that you are. There are other projects and pet projects that may not even be on the same budget roster, uh, but may uh, come in and steal your budget. There are all sorts of different cast of characters. And then you've got the decision-making unit. Mm-hmm. Who is ultimate power? Who rubber stamps the deal? Who are the sub-decision-makers? Oh, Who yeah. has their ear? If you don't know this stuff... Well, exactly. I mean, I'm just just grabbed the report here. And as I said to you, you know, 1.6 million sales transactions, those with seven to nine relationships took 58% less time to close. So you're effectively creating a doubling of your workforce in sales, aren't you? Yeah, without hiring a single extra person. So if you have an attrition problem and you're an FD or an HRD, then think about solutions like this. How can I double my production for no cost? Well, you can't hire anybody at the moment, right? Because we know there's a huge war for talent. Um, You know, my understanding is that for every active job seeker, there's about eight available jobs in the UK market, right? So it's incredibly difficult. And whether the great resignation has happened is a different story. But, you know, trying to hire people is really hard. Trying to get those people up to speed takes time. Why would you not do more with less and create a better working environment in the process? And this then comes back to that subject of engagement. Employee engagement in the UK is down to 9% highly engaged. (laughs) 18% actively disengaged. That's twice as many trying to put spanners in the works than actually make the damn thing function well. And you've got a bunch of people in the middle who are disenfranchised, frustrated, because we've now reached a point where there is all of this upheaval. The environment we are selling into is one of uncertainty, volatility, ambiguity. There's a huge amount of complexity. And that then frightens a lot of people. And I think as salespeople, we need to be a, a touch paper for uh, people feeling safe. And unless we start thinking at a macro level or even a meta level, we're not going to justify being there by their side throughout that buying journey. Mm-hmm. Because Steve's point is really well made. If you don't align with the buyer's journey in corporate, Basically, the best you can hope for is to pick up the scraps of someone who's willing to take a punt. If you want the whole account, 
And again, think long-term greedy, long-term selfish. Yeah. Uh, work on developing those relationships, create the engagement, and make sure that the engagement is two-way. Because I think there are an awful lot of salespeople are a bit like the boyfriend who's been dumped and just can't quite let go. Yeah, absolutely. I couldn't, uh, I couldn't agree more. And I think sometimes, you know, I, I think back to some of the situations I've been in where, you know, you're in an interview, for example, and people ask classic questions around biggest weaknesses and stuff like that. And um, I always remember somebody saying that they accepted a yes too quickly. And that always stuck with me. And, and you know, I remember digging into that one and um, the lady who was an excellent salesperson, and she said, you know, when I win a deal, I, I just want to take the yes and get out of the room as quickly as possible. I don't want to jeopardize it. I don't want to say anything that might derail it. I just want to move on and get on to the next one. But actually, if I'd stuck in there and say, brilliant, we've got you guys on board. What other departments, what other divisions, what other sister parent companies should I be speaking with? I probably could have, you know, been even more successful than, than I was. Um, and so I think things like that, once you've done the hard work and you can leverage that, and as we said earlier, you can start to ask for referrals then learning to get other people to do the hard work for you is absolutely critical. Well, a study of over half a million SMEs suggests that if you work your referral base, you have a one in six conversion rate mm -hmm. as opposed to one in 20. So that's over a three times higher conversion rate. If you then move to hot, mm -hmm. i.e. the person making the introduction is trusted both by the vendor and by the prospect, yeah. that goes up to an 80 to 90% conversion. Now, why on God's earth would anybody to choose to sell cold mm -hmm. when you can sell hot every single time? Oh, for sure. I think there's, there's always going to be a time when you have to go cold. The art form for me is create turning any cold call into an ever so slightly warm call, right? And there's the subtle difference there. And I think you can do a relatively small amount of work to get a much better outcome by just planning who you're going to call cold. So there was a very old sales methodology. I think it was TNT, the, one of the courier companies, when sales reps would go on to an industrial estate to do business with a client. And then they would literally, they called it the OXO method, OXO. So they'd come out of the, the client, which was the um, X, and they would go to the buildings on either side, the two Xs, and they would pick up a compliment slip right back in the day and they were the first two companies they called when they got back to the office it's like we've just been in to see so-and-so i noticed you were next door operating this in the space how could we potentially help you guys so you have something that little bit to leverage that little bit more to hang on right and that's a very crude example but i think if you're going to go cold you've got to find a way to make it ever so slightly warm whether it's you work in the space, you work with a competitor, you, you've worked with somebody who used to work there before. It amazes me with the tools that are out there. You know, if you've had success with a key client, why would you not go and map all the people that used to work at that client and see where they are now? You call them up and say, you worked at this company, you used our products, I see you're over here. Would you like to use it again? That's a cold call made warm instantly. And I, I would take it one step further. And if anyone uh, does feel the urge, quick plug, the Black Pearl, I run this every month. It's a mastermind group around strategic alliances, which is how do you turn your cold market hot? So it's all about that. Um, yeah. Steve, we've come to time, sadly. This has been really, really instructive. Tell me this. You've got a golden ticket and you can go back and whisper in the ear of the idiot Steve, age 23. Yes. What one choice bit of advice would you give him as a seller or as a manager? 
I think probably if I was 23 year again, I'd probably be trying to pursue my life on the golf course as a, as a pro golfer. Um, thereafter, I'd probably tell myself not to go into sales. It's bloody hard work if you haven't got <laughs> the tools and the data to support yourself. Um, I think as a leader, any leader who joins a new sales company, I would say go and try and spend a t- bit of time doing as many jobs in that business as possible. Sit, sit in marketing, do a bit of marketing, sit in support, most importantly, understand really the issues and the challenges of the customer base and how you address those. Like invest in the business before you get stuck into the role. I think that's that's what I would encourage myself to do. And if it was me just going back into sales, um, I would always be pushing myself to do more preparation and to think customer first, not salesperson first. What's in it for them? As opposed to what's in it for me. There are going to be an awful lot of people banging on your door with pitchforks and torches with that lot. Good Lord. (laughs) (laughs) Excellent. Um, So content-wise, what what do you, you know, good books or podcasts, uh, videos that you consume? Um, All the classics, right? You know, there's, are there any new ones out there? I like anything around Simon Sinek. I think that's always interesting. I tend to watch the, you know, start with the why every Every three six months, you know, we ran it here recently. We we workshopped our own why. I think it was a, it was a useful exercise to go through. Really enjoyed doing that. And um, I watched, like I'm sure most people on Netflix, the Last Dance, the Michael Jordan documentary. And um, for me, it was fascinating applying it to business because although the obsession was Michael, if you actually looked at some of the other players in the team, their roles they never got the sort of recognition they deserve, but they were critical to his success and the team's success. And, and I think actually it taught me to think, actually, yeah, you might have a star player, but you need very good people around them to make them that star player. Um, so I, I found that fascinating. And then at the moment I'm reading, for no other reason than it gets a wonderful bunch of looks on the train in the morning, Mark, so I'm reading Surrounded by Idiots by Thomas Erickson. <laughs> and, uh, it's, it's basically old school methodology around sort of disc, personality profiling and you know why people come across like they do but more importantly from sales point of view how you interact with them to get the best outcomes very interesting okay how can people get hold of you they can look me up on linkedin my mobile number's on there i am genuinely happy to talk to anybody about anything um, obviously, if they're interested in Epster and how we can help them win more deals and save time and make more money, love to talk about that. Flip side, if they just want to pick my brains on sales process, hiring, tech, always happy to give back and always happy to help. So yeah, mobile numbers on the LinkedIn profile. Um, they can email me, stevebarnhurst at epster.com. Or if you want to take credit for the introduction, they can go through you, Marcus, and you can you can forward them on. We're more than happy to do that. Fantastic. Thank you. One book I would strongly recommend that everyone have a read of is The Divine Comedy of Sales, uh, Sales Manager's Guide to Virtuous Leadership by Matt McDarby. Really well worth a read. Very interesting. Excellent. Steve, thank you very much. Really appreciate you joining me today. No, thank you for your time. Um, I hope I hope it helped, right? I hope it gave a little bit of insight into what I've done over the past few years and the sort of challenges we faced and where we find ourselves now. And yeah, like I say, if anybody's got any questions, um, hopefully positive ones and isn't sort of challenging too much we've said. You know, I, I thought, you, I thought you want the bad news. Yeah, exactly, exactly. Yeah, I started writing the book, you know, go looking for bad news. I never got that far, but um, it's, it's a good philosophy from a sales point of view to work with, you know, go looking for that bad news, get to the know as quickly as possible, move on and go again. 
Good stuff. So, uh, Steve Barnhurst, thank you very much. Marcus, thank you for your time. Been a pleasure. Excellent. So this is Marcus Kauke signing off once again from the Inquisitor podcast. If you found this useful and insightful, please go back, take notes, tag somebody, share, like, comment, and go to uh, Apple Podcasts, leave a genuine review. If you want to slate it, then feel free to do so. I won't be offended. All feedback is uh, useful uh, learning. In the meantime, if you want to get hold of me, Marcus at laughs-last.com. Take care. Happy selling. Bye-bye.